This is a Rooster Teeth production. June 26, 1988. Air France Flight 296Q, a brand new three-day-old Airbus A320 with 136 people on board, is on a special flight. The plane is going to take part in an air show and overfly an audience while just 100 feet above the ground. The crew makes last-minute adjustments to fly just above the crowd, but something goes wrong. The pilots realize that there are trees at the end of the runway, and they apply maximum thrust, but the engines do not respond. The captain pulls back on his side stick, but it is too late. The brand new aircraft flies into the trees at the end of the runway and erupts in flames. What happened to cause this flight to go so wrong? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hi, Gus. That sounds nuts. <laughs> it sounds nuts. Normally, we, we, are, we have not done an air show incident before. Uh-uh. Just air shows have their own things going on, right? Like you're, yeah. it's a lot of acrobatics and things that are out of the ordinary. This one is unusual because it's a commercial airplane with passengers on board doing a flyby at an air show and things go wrong. That's crazy. So I feel like this was a, a little more in, you know, the stuff that we talk about. I'm going to give a little perspective here before we dive into the meat of the episode. Well, before I give perspective, I just want to remind everyone, give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you like, go check out blackboxdownpod.com. You can directly support this podcast for $2.99 a month. Uh, you get ad-free episodes as well as 24-hour early access to all the episodes on whatever platform you already listen to podcasts on. Again, just go check out blackboxdownpod.com if you want to. Yeah, that really just helps make the show. So if you like it and um, you just want to support us, then consider, uh, yeah, but how would you describe that? Like our... It's like a premium. It's a first class uh, experience. First class, yes. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, just check it out if you feel so inclined. If not, we're still going to keep making the show. Yeah, but thank you if you do. But thank you if you do. So, like I said, this was June 26, 1988. The Airbus A320 was a brand new plane. Like, this was, I believe this was the first one that Air France had received, and Air France was like the launch customer for this plane. Wow. So, like, this was this was brand new. This was the first time a lot of people were going to see it. The Airbus A320 was also a very revolutionary aircraft because it pioneered what we know of as fly-by-wire systems. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the way that controls work in various airplanes. And, you know, if you're piloting a small plane or you think about like old-timey planes, Mm -hmm. it's a very manual, labor-intensive process. Like when you pull back on the stick, there's cables and pulleys. And we've talked about these cables and pulleys before. Like there's cables and pulleys that translate the physical force you exert onto the control surfaces and manipulate them. On bigger planes, there may be hydraulic systems that help because, you know, your human muscles aren't strong enough to move a giant piece of a plane. So hydraulics help you be strong enough to be able to move the surfaces of the plane. Power steering. Exactly, like power steering. In this kind of plane... In the A320, the A320 was the first commercial airplane that used fly-by-wire technology. And what that means is you input your controls to the plane, and those controls are fed into a computer, and then the computer sends electrical signals that actually activate the control surfaces of the plane. So whatever you're doing gets interpreted by a computer, and then the computer is what executes the the moves that you want to do. Okay, so it's, yeah, it's more... High tech. Yeah. It's like if you were driving your car and there was no physical connection between your steering wheel and the tires. You know, like if you turned it and there was a computer sitting in the way that interpreted your turns of the wheel and the computer activated motors that turned the tires. More like a video game. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to think of it. It's a lot more like a video game. No physical 
you know, manipulation of the control surfaces and no hydro. Well, there are hydraulics, but uh, yeah, but no they're not one to one directly. Correct. Inter- yeah. So a little different and a little bit of trivia. I had to look this up because I was curious. Uh, there's nowhere else to put this in this episode. So I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and mention it right now. I started wondering, I was like 1988, you know, this rolls out. They got this fly by wire system. So I started wondering what kind for just from like a, I'm, I'm a big computer nerd, just from a computer nerd perspective, what kind of processors did they use? Like what kind of computers were there in this plane that enabled this fly by wire system? The early A320s used the Intel 186 processor. <laughs> And in 1988, the flight management computer contained six Intel 286 CPUs. So what is that? Like, <laughs> you, you know, when Intel, you know, first came out with these processors, it uh-huh. was like, they referred to them as like the x86 line of processors because it was like 186, 286, 386, 486, and then Pentium. Like, uh-huh. we're on, I don't know what generation, we're on like on generation 20 by now. Like, this was the initial, like, the very first computer my family owned when it was like in 1992, I think was like a 486. Like these are ancient computers. In fact, the initial, like I said, when they upgraded to the 6286 CPUs, uh-huh. they had 2.5 megabytes of memory. Two point, uh, megabytes? Yeah, if you think about a floppy disk, remember those? Yeah. Those were 1.4 megabytes. So it was less than two floppy disks worth of memory. Granted, that's physical storage and not, yeah, ra- yeah, that's, that's, not mem- RAM, but same thing. Not but like thing, most computers nowadays have like 16 or 32 gigabytes. Gigabytes. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't clarify. And, yeah. And a gigabyte is a thousand megabytes. Yeah. So yeah, nowadays you might have like 16,000 uh, <laughs> megabytes. And back then they had 2.5. And they're more efficient now too. Like, yeah. yeah. So just, just, just crazy to think about the, the technology that they had and that they were putting into the plane to enable this fly-by-wire technology. If that all sounds old to you ask your parents they'll understand <laughs> <laughs> so okay this flight air france flight 296q uh-huh. it was a chartered flight it was going from paris france to basel mulhouse airport which was outside of st louis france st okay. i'm sure you say it saint louis or something else but st louis and had a stopover in habsheim france where there was an air show that was being held uh, on that day the flight was crewed by Captain Michel Asseline, who was 44 years old, with 10,463 flight hours, and First Officer Pierre Maziers, who was 45 years old, at 10,853 flight hours. So even though Pierre is listed as the First Officer, these were both very accomplished Air France uh-huh. pilots. These were like the best of the best, like instructors. Captain Michel Asseline was like the pilot who was helping to introduce the A320 to the airline. He had the most experience with it. Like he was a big proponent of this plane and the fly-by-wire system. So I just want to throw that out there. It wasn't like that they both have a lot of hours. It's not like one of them was brand new or just starting out or something. These were both like some of the best pilots that Air France had. The people who were on this flight, did they like know that they were going to be part of it? <laughs> they, they knew that, right? So they, a lot of the people on this plane were journalists because they were, you know, this was a okay. historic flight. And also some people had won contests to be passengers on this flight. Because it was no. such a big deal. Like they'd entered, yeah. you know, raffles and lotteries to try to be able to be on this plane. Uh, and yeah, they knew that it was going to make a stop at this air show. The flight was actually supposed to continue on after mm-hmm. this air show and go like circle around Mont Blanc and just do like a bunch of sightseeing. Yeah. So this was just like the very beginning of that. So yes, they did, they did know that, that they were going to be flying over an air show. Because I, 
<laughs> just imagine, feel like you're doing a flight. Hey, we're going to take a quick detour down to the gr- 100 feet. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let, let me give you a little spoiler for the end of the episode. This is not allowed anymore. You can no longer do this. <laughs> so like we said, this is a brand new plane. It only had 22 hours on it and 18 cycles. Uh-huh. There were four flight attendants and 130 passengers on board. So the 136 people total, 130 passengers, four flight attendants, two pilots. So the plan for this day was to fly from Paris to the Basel Mulhouse Airport and then do two round trips from Basel Mulhouse and then return to Paris. And then those round trips, like I said, it's going to circle Mont Blanc and other things and then fly back up to Paris. At the start of each of these two round trips, the crew was to overfly the Habsheim Airport at the request of the Mulhouse Flying Club as part of the air show that was going on. And this airport, the Basel Mulhouse Airport and the Habsheim Airport, are only about 10 nautical miles apart from each other. So it was only like a four-minute flight from the time they took off to the time they were at the other airport where the air show was. They were really close. So the preparations for this flights were made by the regional Air France delegation in Mulhouse, Uh the air charter, and the service line and regions of the Air France Operations Department. The delegation at Mulhouse took care of the administrative preparations. The air charter took care of the route, choice of the aircraft, preparing the contract, and Air France Operations Department studied the conditions under which the flight was to be performed and prepared the technical file for the crew. According to the declarations made by the airline, the preparations were made, taking into account obstacles in the area with the planned low-altitude flyover of Runway 2. This is very important. Remember this. Low-altitude flyover of Runway 2. Uh-huh. On June 24th, the A320 flight division received the file for the flight review. So you can already tell there's a lot of people involved in this. This is a big deal. And so there's a lot of different people, you know, helping to organize, making sure everything's going to go okay. On the morning of the 26th, the crew received the flight plan and took off from Paris and landed at Basel Mulhouse with everything going normally. As the crew were getting ready to depart for their first round trip, the captain and the first officer briefed their plan to overfly the Habsheim airport. The plan was to first overfly at a low speed with landing gear and flaps extended at an altitude of 100 feet and then do another overfly at a high speed in a clean configuration. And that just means gear up and flaps up. Okay. So they do it and then they what, like do a 180 and come back? I don't know if it was a 180 or a 360. Okay. Regardless, they're going to go come in low with gear and flaps down, then circle and then bring their gear and flaps up, and then come back over at a higher speed. Why would they keep their gear and flaps? Why would they put the stuff down to land? It looks cool. I mean, (laughs) uh, plus also if they're going to be doing a low speed pass, they want the flaps out anyway to help generate extra lift. Okay. So that I can understand. The gear, they probably didn't need to. I don't know what their reasoning for that was. Probably just because it looks cool. It looks like the plane's going to come in and land, you know? Uh, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So they took off at about 1241. And they climbed to an altitude of 2,000 feet, which was about 1,000 feet above the ground. Remember, this flight is only going to take like four minutes, so yeah. they don't have a ton of time. So they don't, they don't climb very high, just 1,000 feet off the ground. While in level flight, the auto throttle was disengaged so the pilots could manually control the thrust and warnings related to the landing gear and the radio altimeter. Because you know, the, when they're doing this, the plane's going to think that they're landing and the auto throttle is going to kick in. So they disable the auto throttle so they can manually control it so the plane doesn't, you know, the, the plane's responding to their direct inputs. Okay. At 1244, they start to descend. They pull the throttle back, extend the flaps and lower the landing gear. Because you can tell this sounds like a landing. They don't want the auto throttle to think they're landing. So they disable that auto throttle. So that way they can, they can give it power when they need. Mm-hmm. The pilots then set their pressure setting for the Habsheim airport on the altimeter and cross-check to make sure everything was all right. 
The descent rate was about 600 feet per minute, so it's pretty slow or not, you know, super aggressive or anything. Yeah. Well, they're not high, so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so this is good. If they're, if they're only a thousand feet above the ground, you know, 600 feet a minute of descent, you descend less than two minutes. At 1245, a warning related to the radio altitude and flaps three configuration went off, followed mm -hmm. by an oral altimeter message of 200 feet. So it's just like the plane's letting them know, like all the warning systems are like, hey, you, you know, the ground is right below us. Yeah. A second 200 feet oral message went off and interrupted a personal remark made by the first officer a few seconds later. The first officer then informed the captain the aircraft was reaching 100 feet and simultaneously the radio altimeter emitted a 100 feet message. Mm -hmm. But the descent rate was still 600 feet per minute. Mm -hmm. So that's like 10 seconds, right? Yeah, a sixth of a minute, so 10 seconds. You are correct. About eight seconds after they no. reached 100 feet, the plane was at an altitude of 50 feet. And then it very slowly descended to about 30 to 35 no. feet above the ground where the plane leveled off. Don't worry, Chris. They're okay. Low. Well, no. Still, they're, they're lower than they thought. Remember, the plan was 100 feet. Yeah. So the aircraft overflew the runway, you know, uh -huh. like they were supposed to, but clipped some trees that were located shortly at the end of the runway at 1245 and 40 seconds. Did they know they're, they're lower than they're supposed to be right now? Well, they probably are when they hit the trees, but like... <laughs> uh, so... They would have had information telling them what their altitude was. Their, you know, the radio altimeter okay. should be telling them exactly how high they are off the ground. And they, like I said, they clipped some trees at the end of the runway. And the first contact between the aircraft and the trees was made by the rear section of the fuselage, then the engine nacelles and the main landing gear. Because remember, it's very nose up when they're doing this. So the back of the plane is actually the lowest part. So that's what clips the, uh, oh. the trees first. Oh, wait, is it one of those things where... Because they're nosed up, it's reading their altitude from the front of the plane? Um, it's possible, but it wouldn't account for that great of a difference. Like, it wouldn't give them okay. 60 feet. Yeah. So, did the people at the air show see them hit the trees? Chris, there's video footage of this. The people at the air show are filming. There's multiple oh angles God. of people filming this incident, which actually turned out to be really useful for the investigation. I bet. Yeah, because there's multiple angles. You can see exactly what's going on. Oh, my God. So... We know when the aircraft sank into the forest, the tip of the right wing, then the right wing itself broke. Fuel was like projected forward and fire immediately broke out, penetrated the cabin as soon as the aircraft came to rest. So from the perspective of the people at the air show, uh -huh. the plane, you know, hits these trees, keeps going, disappears into the trees, and then there's a huge fireball. Oh my God. Evacuation was made immediately via the left side of the plane. However, the forward left door could not be opened completely because of the trees. You know, they're in the forest, so they try to open the doors, and there's, like, trees all around blocking them. So so they hit the trees, but, like, the, there's people evacuating? I mean, people aren't just yeah. all dead? They they hit the trees. So they were going pretty slow, uh -huh. and they were really low to the ground. They were Like we said, they're only 30, 35 feet off the ground. So people did survive. Not everyone okay. passed away. And that's why they begin evacuating immediately. Uh, like I said, they couldn't open the forward left door, so they opened the left aft door. And the escape slides deployed, uh -huh. but the slides were perforated by the trees. <laughs> so oh, no. There were problems, you know, trying to evacuate this plane. And Are they on the ground? Yeah, they're on the ground okay. at this point. They're not like... You they're know, not super hot. Yeah, they're yeah. not being suspended by the trees up in the air. Okay. Initially, everyone survives the impact. However, there were three passengers who weren't able to escape, and they were killed oh. in the subsequent fire. In fact, one of the people who passed away was someone who was about to escape, saw someone else who was having trouble, and went back to try to help someone. Oh, no. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, someone tried to do the right thing, and they, they passed away for it. It's uh, it was awful, awful tragedy. The person they went back to help? They also passed away. They were one of the other uh, victims in the fire. That's, that's terrible. Super terrible. So 
obviously something went very wrong here. And so it's an investigation that's carried out by the French BEA. Uh-huh. And of course, they determine immediately there's no mechanical or instrument failures with the aircraft that could have compromised safety. The weather, the lighting, navigational aids were all satisfactory before the accident. Mm-hmm. There's no medical or pathological evidence which may have influenced the flight either. Therefore, the commission was led to concentrate their investigation on the circumstances of the preparation for the flight, on the elements liable to have influenced behavior of the crew during the flight. So luckily for them, the crew all survived. So they can interview the pilots and try to find out what happened here. Mm, yeah. According to the departments of Air France responsible for flight preparation, the low-altitude overflights had been studied as provided for an internal note for the airline. The study would mainly have considered in checking obstacle clearance in case of engine failure. And according to the airline... These flybys were studied for flight over runway two. Remember, I mentioned that earlier. I said it was very important. So they were studying, you know, they, they studied mm-hmm. this overflight on runway two. And this led the commission to make the following remarks. First, runway two cannot be used by the A320 due mainly to the fact its strength is too low. So this is something you probably don't ever think about. Runways are rated for their strength, like what they're made of and how much weight they can hold. Oh. This runway, runway two, is not strong enough to support the A320. So if something goes wrong, the, the A320 cannot land on this runway. It would just sink through it or like it would, they would be bad. Yeah. Okay. Because I knew there's issues with like some runways are too short for... Mm-hmm. This is a, a small runway. Uh-huh. This particular runway, runway two, was 3,281 feet long. That's really small. In an emergency, they might have been able to stop an A320 on that. Yeah. So the landing distance required for an A320 is about 4,600 feet. So no, it's actually too short. So this runway is too short and too soft for the A320 to try to land on. But they're not landing on it, or not supposed to be. Right, they're just saying in case of an emergency, in case of an engine failure, they cannot try to land on this. That, that, this is just part of their study for okay. in, order, in preparation for, for this air show. Then they say another thing. They say, second, the runway to be used could not have been foreseen at the time when the flight was prepared by the department concerned because weather conditions were unknown and Air France was not notified of the runway selection by the organizers. The internal note that was referenced was drawn up by Air France to prevent demonstration flights from being made at heights which are too low. This note specifies that all or part of a tourist demonstration flight must be subject to accurate definition of the way in which the flight will be carried in regards to distance, altitude, configuration, and more, and the corresponding task sharing. These directives should have been drawn up by the flight division but it was only on the Friday afternoon that the flight file was handed over by the employee responsible for its preparation to the technical assistant of the division at the moment when he was leaving. So they kind of like handed off this information to the person responsible late in the day on a, you know, on a Friday when it's the end of the workday and the guy's leaving. What? The persons responsible within the flight division did not deal with this earlier, probably due to their workload related to the entry into service of the aircraft. So on top of this, like, they were busy because the A320 was launching, so they were kind of divided in their attention. And finally, they estimated the captain was perfectly capable of planning this flight himself, given his position in the company. The uh-huh. cap- like I said, the captain was the head of the company's A320 training subdivision yeah. uh, and had been heavily involved in test flying the A320. He carried out maneuvers beyond normal operational limitations, had total confidence in the computer systems of the aircraft. So this is the Friday before they're like, hey, do all the calculations? Yeah, they're like, here's all the information you need. And they didn't really get a chance to look it over. Okay. So due to the short period of time available, the technical assistant did not have time to make verbal comments on the file to the captain who was flying on duty at the time. And the first officer was not contacted. So again, like we have this compressed time frame. So like important steps are getting skipped here. The pilots were chosen for this flight as they had managerial experience and reconnaissance of the Habsham airport by the crew 
was at no time considered. So, you know, even though these pilots were experienced and, mm-hmm. you know, knew how to fly this plane, no one ever considered, hey, should we let the pilots go check out the airport before they do a flyover? Which, of course, seems crazy to me. Yeah, it was only, what, how far away, driving-wise even? Oh, it was uh, 10 miles away from the other airport. But, and I mean, granted, it's like kind of small town. It's, you know, but still, it's only 10 minutes away from the other. You think they could have flown out there and then driven the 10 miles or yeah. found a way to go out and take inspect it and take a look at it. The meeting provided for its regulations on its initiative between the airshow flight manager and the crew did not take place, thus depriving them of information which could have been useful. The organizer had held that same morning a preparation meeting with all the other pilots concerned, but was not worried by the absence of this crew due to the correct performance of flights made during Air France's participation in previous air shows at Habsheim, and the freeing of the airspace was planned from the moment when the aircraft was to take off from Basel Mulhouse. So the organizers of the air show had a briefing that morning with all of the pilots involved in the air show, except for the Air France pilots. But they weren't worried. They said, you know, they knew that the Air France pilots know what they're doing. We're going to close all the airspace. It's not a big deal. So even though there was a briefing for all the pilots, they didn't require Air France pilots to be there. And the organizers really weren't concerned about it. Hmm. The crew had therefore received no information or verbal comments on the file drawn up for them. And neither of them had previously performed a demonstration flight either. The file was handed over to the crew as it stood. It included none of the required items noted in the internal note, nor did it give any indication of the height or overflight axis to be observed or any direct means of contact with the airshow organizers. So it was missing critical information. And then on top of that, it didn't list any way to contact the airshow either <laughs> to get what? information that they could have needed. How, how are they not like, hey, do they not call? Is there, or I guess you said there's no way to call, but like, how? If I were to take a guess at it, I would say overconfidence. Mm. Thinking that, you know, they know what's going on. It's not going to be a big deal. Even though, you know, there's a lot of procedure involved. We, that's, this is one of the things we talk about all the time. There's a lot of process and checks that go into aviation. And like many incidents we talk about, there's no one red flag like this is exactly what caused it. It's all of these little lapses in safety that are starting to add up, creating problems. I haven't even dropped a bombshell on you yet. We're going <laughs> to, this is going to get oh, even no. crazier. <laughs> Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like walking your dog in public without securing them on a leash. Most of the time, probably fine. But what if one day your dog runs away or gets dog napped? It's better to be careful, especially when it's as simple as using ExpressVPN. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, whatever, your data is not secured. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data. But ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that they can't. It'd take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. ExpressVPN works on all your devices, whether it's a phone, laptop, tablet, even your smart TV. It's so easy to use. Just fire up the app, click one button to get protected. I've been using ExpressVPN for quite a while now. It's great, on, like I said, on all devices. Got it on my laptop, got it on my phone, got it on my tablet, you name it. If I'm out somewhere, I don't have to worry about it. It's super easy to install, super easy to use. You forget it's there most of the time. If you want to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN free at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown, that's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown, expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown for an extra three months free of an ExpressVPN. This episode of Blackbox Down is brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. 
You get farm fresh seasonal produce and easy to make recipes delivered right to your door every week. Uh, ingredients travel from the farm to your doorstep in under a week. So they always arrive fresh, all without a trip to the grocery store or farmer's market. It's all about convenience with HelloFresh. Not only do the ingredients come pre-portioned, so you're not overbuying or wasting food, but it's easier than ever to get filling meals on the table in a snap with options like family-friendly or quick and easy recipes. I've talked about it before. I think it's a super fun project. Typically takes about 30 minutes, and when you're done, uh, you get to eat it. Plus, also, it's a good way to break out of, you know, I don't know about you. I fall in the same routine. I end up eating the same things lots of times. Uh, when I get my HelloFresh, as you know, a preset meal, I'm like, oh, well, this is something that breaks me out of the norm. Uh, not only is it fun to make, but then, like I said, you get to eat it when it's done. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Code BlackBoxDown16. That's BlackBoxDown to the number one and the number six for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll hear amazing stories from people that have lived them, from spies to CEOs and even brilliant scientists who can help us understand our own minds. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with Ken Perenni, an amazingly talented art forger who fooled thousands of museums, experts, and art buyers. He gave me a book on art forgery. I began to unlock the secrets I was a storehouse of knowledge of how to create an illusion, present it to a experienced expert, manipulate his mind, and bring him to the inevitable conclusion that the painting is genuine. We flooded the market with my paintings, and I couldn't believe what I did. I couldn't believe it. Then the dominoes started falling, and eventually the FBI were led to my door. They uncovered a mountain of evidence against me. But they never actually got you. Why did it go away? Why did you never get indicted? How are we having this conversation? <laughs> I guess that's the greatest story of all. If you want to hear more about how Ken made millions forging art, dodged the mafia, and even the FBI, check out episode 282 of The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. So the crew should have referred to the internal note that specifies a minimum height of 100 feet. The commission remarks that, one, the note was not appended to the file handed over to the crew, even if its existence is recalled in the message, and two, the 100 feet height was not applicable to Habsheim overflight, as none of the runways were usable by the A320. So that, they're just saying that, like, why are they getting so low? Because if there's a problem, they can't land here. <laughs> Third, the choice of 100 feet is in contradiction with the French air safety regulations, which impose a minimum overflight height of 170 feet using VFR. Even though the height of 100 feet has been used many times, there have not been any reactions from the administration or any air show organizers. So technically, the minimum is supposed to be 170 feet, but... Apparently, it's like one of those rules that everyone ignored. Okay. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, Chris. I have no answer for you. Um, there's, it's just dangerous. It's just dangerous. Yeah, and I didn't, th I mean, think about like when you're like, yeah, if anything goes wrong, they can't land. Yeah. Right. That's, it's not just that one runway. It's none of them. None of them right. on the airport. And when you have, and we've talked about things like this many times, when you have an emergency and, you know, you have like power failure or something, you can trade speed for altitude or altitude for speed. But 
when you're when you have very little altitude and very little speed, there's nothing you can trade. There's nothing you can give. So yeah. it's like when you're going low and slow, if something goes wrong, it's there's nothing to recover. Yeah. Like there, you, you have you have nothing to give. Anyway, anyway, where was I? So the crew was handed the file about the flyovers on that morning of the flight. They made the flight preparation only from items differing from their normal working documentation and describing an airport, the Habsheim Airport, and its surroundings, which they were unfamiliar with, we talked about, because they've never been there. And they're trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to do this. They also seem to not have tried to obtain additional information concerning the overflight. So they just kind of like took everything they were given at face value without really questioning it. The commission thinks it's probable the captain judged the flyovers presented no difficulties and he had no need for additional information. Like I said, overconfidence. Yeah. The commission also notes that the Air France personnel directly concerned would no doubt not have been easy to contact on a Sunday. The captain chose to fly over runway two because of the terrain and both flyovers were planned without a previous flight over the airport. Again, no one had looked at the airport before this or none of the people directly involved had looked at the airport. The commission also notes that the second flyover was supposed to be done at 100 feet in a clean configuration at a higher speed by the first officer, but this is not in accordance with the internal note for Air France that specifies that a clean configuration flyover should be done at 300 feet. Again, remember, clean configuration is flaps and gear up, like like not in a landing configuration. So again, they're going to do this clean configuration flyover way too low, below what it should be. So this is the time when I'm going to drop the bombshell on you, Chris. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> so like we, 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 I've set up a lot of things here. You know, this flight from their airport that they started, that they were starting this leg on to the air show was 10 miles. It was a four minute flight. The pilots had not seen this airport. They'd never been to this airport before. They were planning for this overfly of runway two, which we talked about was too weak and too short for them to land on. Mm-hmm. You know, t- they take off and, you know, they only go a thousand feet above the ground and they're looking for the airport. You know, they have to visually find it after they take off. They've only got a couple minutes to find it. They find yeah. it. They descend to come over and do their flyover. As they're lining up to fly over runway two, the captain realizes that's not where the crowd is. What? The crowd is lined up over a grass runway, runway three, four. So he has to, at the very last second, turn the plane. Oh, no. And not fly over the direction that they, they thought they were going to fly, but instead fly over this grass runway. You know what's at the end of the grass runway? Trees. A forest. Oh, my God. <laughs> there, there was more clearance at the end of runway two. Granted, there, the forest still comes around, but uh-huh. there was more clearance at the end of runway two. There's a way less clearance at the end of runway three, four. So the captain sees that the crowd is at the other runway, makes an adjustment to fly over this grass <sighs> runway three, four instead, doesn't tell the first officer. Oh, no. He just kind of repositions the plane and flies over oh. runway three, four. Like, when in the timeline is this? This is like... This is like... A minute out, you know, it's only a four minute flight. This is when they're, this is, he realizes it after they see the airport when they're starting to do the flyover. So when they're descending, the commission believes that the first officer heard the radio altimeter announcement that showed 100 feet of altitude Uh because he stopped what he was saying when it went off. This also indicates the first officer was using the radio altimeter as the height reference or that the altimeter indications were consistent with those of the radio altimeter. The officer then made a remark to watch out for pylons ahead, you know, because they have pylons set up for the air show. What are pylons? Sorry. Like really tall pillars, like the planes will do acrobatics and like slalom through them and stuff like that. Okay. The captain, however, did not react to the radio altimeter announcements of 50 and 40 feet. Oh my God. Or to a possible reading of the instruments. And he dismissed the warning about the pylons with a, yeah, yeah, don't worry. (laughs) 
Oh my God. A problem of reference is raised for the 100 feet flyover margin. The radio altimeter readings are only valid for flat terrain over a topographically known contour with electrically well-flagged points. So there may be some problems because it's, if it's not perfectly flat, if it's uneven, they're flying over a forest as well. And they got pylons and Right. Stuff. So yeah. may, maybe, the, maybe the captain's thinking, well, the radio altimeter is a little off because it's not exactly flat here. It's not used to this terrain. You know, we're not over a big airport runway where we would normally land. Well, but also, what if it's off in the wrong way? Or Correct. Do yeah. Uh, it's possible. But, you know, in addition to the radio altimeter, they also have a barometric altimeter, which is like an instrument that they have to manually set. You know, they set it for the pressure outside and it measures uh-huh. pressure differences and, you know, gives you your altitude. And its intrinsic accuracy at a low altitude is around 30 feet. The altimeter reference pressure is supplied to within 15 feet. What this is saying is, even though he may be dismissing the radio altimeter, the barometric altimeter is still telling him, it, it, it doesn't have an announcement or anything, but if you look at it, it's still yeah. like, oh no, we are low. Look, it's not the radio altimeter messing up. Even the barometric altimeter is telling us we're really low right now. Yeah. But that being said, you know, there is a little bit of leeway. You know, the barometric altimeter is not as precise. It does have a little bit of given it. So you can't use it to do an accurate low flyover. It can, it's telling you you're low, but you can't know I'm exactly 100 mm-hmm. feet using the barometric altimeter. These considerations may have led the crew to have only limited confidence in the readings of these two instruments. So they're kind of like, well, maybe maybe the instruments are inaccurate uh, for what we're doing right now. Because again, this is a little unusual what they're doing. It's kind of out of spec for what these systems are designed for. Yeah. Also, the commission notes that if the descent below 100 feet was not made voluntarily, this supposes that the captain was flying by sight and that oh. he had not registered the RL announcements made by their radio altimeter as he was occupied with other tasks. Remember, he was not familiar with what the area looked like. He was accustomed to bigger airports and runways Uh and bigger towers. The scale of the runways and the scale of the 40-foot high tower might have given him a false impression about what his height was. Also, if you think about it, they were so nose up, it wouldn't be easy to see down in front of him because he's kind of pointing up at the sky. And it would seem higher. Right. Plus, also, since everything's smaller than he's used to, it may make him think, like for flying into a normal airport that it, where everything's bigger, that he's further away. Yeah. It's like an opti- a weird optical illusion. Mm-hmm. It's like, a, it's, it's, it's not exactly tiny the same, but town. it makes me think of like... It's tiny town. Well, it makes me think of forced perspective, like in Lord yeah. of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like you put one person close to the camera and another person far away, and it really skews with your perspective. Or tiny town. What's tiny town, Chris? <laughs> I don't know. It's like a... I don't know if it's a specific thing. Did you and I ever... I was a kid. We went out to this like ranch thing... And there was like a little city with little buildings and little cars and you drive around in it. It's like a tiny town. Is this like, is that in Texas? What are you talking about? Yeah, I think it's in Lubbock, Texas. It's tiny town. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I don't know if it's called tiny town. I, I have no idea. I've, you, you've baffled me, Chris. I guess I've only, I've only been to Lubbock once. I I did not go to tiny town. I don't know if it's called. (laughs) Listeners, please send us a comment on social media. Explain to me what Chris is talking about. (laughs) Are you from Lubbock? Do you listen to this podcast? Please tell me what Tiny Town is. Because apparently it's just like this incident. I'm gonna if I find a picture of it, we'll post on social media. If it exists still. This was like forever ago. Okay. So, like we said, the captain's unfamiliar with this airport. Everything's a little smaller, like Tiny Town. And he made this maneuver with the throttles at flight idle and maximum nose-up stabilized position. Like I said, this might be why he can't see very well. He's looking up. 
He had often performed similar maneuvers at high altitude and on simulators. These maneuvers were generally made with a stabilized engine speed well above idle, and the thrust was established very quickly, permitting immediate increase in height. However, at an air show, it's the ideal occasion to demonstrate the possibilities of the A320, of which he was an ardent advocate. The choice of a flyover at maximum angle of attack may also have been the result of the atmosphere created by the air show festivities on the ground and on board and the presence of uh, female passengers in the cockpit. I forgot to mention, uh, they had invited a, like a female flight attendant into the cockpit with them. And it's kind of speculated that maybe he was trying to show off for her too. Oh. So, but regardless of uh-huh. having the flight attendant in the cockpit, it's also said that, you know, there's this air show going on. There's a celebration. This is a plane that the captain loves and he wants to try to show it off. So maybe he's doing things, you know, a little more extreme than he should be doing. So when they pass in front of the tower, the captain applied maximum thrust, but the aircraft was at a low speed and a low altitude. And the engines, which were at idle, like I said, they don't instantly give you high thrust. They've got to like spool up. Uh-huh. So three seconds after applying go around thrust, the captain gradually brought the pitch control to full nose up position. This action was probably motivated by a sudden awareness of danger. Well, when the rear fuselage hit the trees or the rear section of the fuselage hit the trees, more drag was created, which prevented the aircraft from gaining additional height. I, I watched a, a video where a pilot breaks down this incident. Uh-huh. And he says that, when you're flying an A320 like this, he's a commercial pilot. He says, when you're flying an A320 like this, if you have your engines at idle and then you give them like full go-around power, that it takes five seconds for them to get from idle to full power. And what we talked about here is he gave it go-around power. Then three seconds after he gave it that thrust, he starts pulling back on uh, his, his side stick. Because, you know, at this point, he knows that they're about to hit these trees. But... You know, the, air, the engines are still spooling up. They start hitting trees, which slows them down more. And uh-huh. they, you know, their fate is sealed at that point. They can't climb. So, so they're, because he's doing it too soon, he, they're, they're just like, they're just sinking. There's, yeah, there's not, the, the, the engines haven't given power yet. They're still not at full power. So they can't, they can't really climb. Or can they? We're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. So I, I want to get to some findings here before we, uh, before we get into uh, some other things I want to talk about. So the official report seems pretty cut and dry, right? Aircraft, like we said, was in flight-worthy condition. The weight and balance were within authorized limits. Errors in any calculation did not in any way influence the flight. Commission found no malfunction of the aircraft or its equipment, which could have contributed to a reduction in safety or an increase in the crew's workload. The two pilots held management positions in their airline, and they participated at various stages in development and entry into service of the A320. Neither of the two pilots had previously made a demonstration flight. To prepare for this flight, the crew were in possession of a short brief for the part concerning the overflights. The crew had only partial information on the organization of the air show, particularly because the absence of prior contact between the organizers and the crew. Locating of the airport was late. Like I said, remember, they had to find it once they were in the yeah. air and it took, they found it late. And then on top of that, they had to change runways. Yeah. How did that happen? Who, who messed that up? I think it's because no one had actually gone to the airport. I think the Air France people assumed it was going to be a flyover of runway two, when in reality, event organizers knew that everything was being done at the grass runway three, four, and it was just a failure of communication. So they just... if like There were a lot of times where this could have been caught. Remember how I said that the air show had a briefing with all the pilots that morning? Uh-huh. If someone had attended there, they would have talked about that. If there was contact information for the event organizers in the plan that was given to the pilots, they could have contacted them. There's a lot of steps where... There was just no communication. The organizers assumed that Air France knew everything without explicitly telling them that. Uh. So again, there's not 
any one critical point where this failed. There's multiple points where yeah. this information should have been relayed and was not. Descent for this maneuver started at 5.5 nautical miles from the airport. The engines were throttled back to flight idle throughout the descent with the speed reducing. So, you know, the engines had been idle for five and a half miles, you know, as they're slowly descending, mm -hmm. coming in to do this maneuver. When 100 feet above ground level was reached, the descent rate was still about 600 feet per minute. So even when they reached their target altitude, they were still descending. <laughs> that's, that's a big no-no. You should slow yeah. that descent before you hit your target. That way you hit your target. The captain leveled off at a height of about 30 feet, engines at flight idle, with the attitude increasing. He did not have the time to stabilize the angle of attack at the maximum value that he had selected. Again, this is, you know, like I said, they had to change where they were going at the last second. They were too low. Just not ideal. They're primed for something to go wrong and something did. Rapid application of full power occurred between 1245 and 34 seconds and 1245 and 35 seconds. The angle of attack at, was at this time 15 degrees and the speed was 122 knots. The response of the engines was normal and in compliance with certification requirements. Like I said, going from idle to full power takes these engines about five seconds. The aircraft touched the trees between 1245 and 39 seconds and 1245 and 40 seconds. So this is what, like five seconds after full uh -huh. power was given. So this is right when they would have started giving full thrust is when they start touching the trees. And at the same time, remember the captain's pulling back, which kind of decreases it a bit. This is when they hit the trees the first time. Right, like when, they're, when the back of the plane starts hitting. Okay. It. And then, you know, the rear section of fuselage hits it and then it slowly sinks into the forest as a result of that drag and the loss of engine power caused by the ingestion of leaves and branches. The commission believes that the accident resulted from the combination of the following conditions, very low flyover height, lower than surrounding obstacles, speed very slow and reducing to reach the maximum possible angle of attack, engine speed at flight idle, late application of go-around power. This combination of conditions led to the impact of the aircraft with the trees. The commission also believes that if the descent below 100 feet was not deliberate, it may have resulted from failure to take proper account of the visual and aural information intended to give the height of the aircraft. The commission also remarked that the following factors contributed towards placing the crew in a situation where they were not able to fully control. The flight preparation was insufficient, especially due to the brevity and late provision of the brief and of the information about the air show. Mm -hmm. The task sharing planned for the flyover by the crew was incomplete and not followed. I didn't really get into that specific part. The way that they had divvied up the tasks was the captain said that he was going to fly the plane. He was going to get the plane into the angle of attack he wanted. And the first officer was supposed to slowly add throttle. Because remember, they had disabled the auto throttle. So uh -huh. it was the first officer's job to slowly give power. But, you know, when, when he panicked, the captain just took over and immediately gave it full power himself. So they hadn't properly planned how to share their tasks. And then when it came time to do it, they didn't share the tasks the way they were supposed to. Well, when you say they hadn't properly planned, did, was the first officer doing controlling throttle not what they should have done? They should have, but, you know, he should have, he should have probably given power earlier. Okay. Or, you know, they shouldn't have been that idle in the position they were. It, it, again, it's hard to say. Even like I said, their, their task sharing plan was incomplete. They didn't really fully mm -hmm. break up their, yeah. their tasks. So it, it could have been, it should have been more precisely planned out and more strictly followed. And again, like we said earlier, the holiday atmosphere for the passengers and the spectators could have you know, influenced the captain. And there's like press on board. And yeah. Exactly. He wants to show off. He's very proud of this plane. He's very proud of his involvement this is, a, again, I can't stress that enough. This is such a big deal, you know, and it just may have influenced the way he was thinking. 
And again, like we said, the A320, this is another, their next finding here, is the A320 has new features which may have inspired some overconfidence in the mind of the captain. These new mm. features of the aircraft had sometimes been criticized and the captain wanted to defend the aircraft. Remember, like I said, fly-by-wire was very new. This is the first time it was being used in commercial aviation. And mm-hmm. the captain wanted, you know, he wanted to show that it was safe. Neither of these two pilots had previously experienced of demonstration flights. The late identification of the airport led to a rush of events and the making of the descent and then the complete flyover above the runway with the engines at flight idle without stabilizing the flight parameters. Neither of the two pilots had previous experience of applying go-around power from flight idle in similar conditions. So there were um, some recommendations, of course. Airline pilots be reminded that their job consists of strictly applying standard and well-defined procedures. Consequently, their training be more oriented towards safety, which requires that standard flight conditions be permanently maintained. For the A320 training in particular, the pilots are made aware that the performance limitations still stand as on any other aircraft in spite of many automatic protections. And we've talked about some of these protections before, I think specifically with Air France 447 about like normal law, alternate law, Uh flight envelope protections. Uh, Like the A320 was kind of the introduction of a lot of these protections. And they just want to remind people, hey, these protections are cool and all, but you still have to, like, it's not going to save you if you're doing something wrong. You still need yeah. to fly the plane. So was he, was he thinking that it would? Like, Well, yeah, I mean, I can't speak to that exactly, but I think what they, what they wanted to make sure was that pilots in general didn't think that mm-hmm. these safety okay. precautions would save them if they did something bad. They're there to help, but in the end, yeah. you know, pilots still have to go through thousands of hours of training and years of practice in order to fly a plane. So uh, they want to make sure, hey, don't forget, you've trained for this. You still need to fly the plane. Crews performing demonstration flights receive special and well-adapted training, which is not within the scope of the basic training or type qualification. So if you're doing a demonstration flight, you need special training to do that. Studies be made to see if it would not be judicious to transmit all warnings and oral announcements via the pilot's headsets. So like, because these warnings they were getting were in the cabin, not specifically directly in their headphones. So they just wanted to see if maybe these warnings should be transmitted directly into their headphones too. Okay. During the safety demonstrations before each flight, use of the seatbelt be demonstrated. These procedures be also indicated in the leaflet giving safety instructions for all passengers. I didn't get into this earlier. Let me read this next recommendation before I, uh, before I explain it. The attention of the seatbelt manufacturers be drawn to the advantage of providing unlocking systems where a single simple action causes both unlocking and separation of the two halves of the belt. You probably don't think much about the seatbelts on a plane. Uh-huh. One of the people who passed away, passed away because they couldn't get their seatbelt off. Oh. And that's, the. remember I said a passenger went back to try to help someone? Uh-huh. It's because she saw another passenger was struggling with their seatbelt. So she went back to help and they both passed away all because that one passenger couldn't get their seatbelt off. And so how do they want to change them exactly? It's just So they change them to the, the seat belts you see nowadays on okay. planes, where it's just one action that unlocks and separates the two pieces. Because you think about it, like all you do is you just lift that little tab now and the seat belt comes off. It's not, it's one step and you're free. <laughs> There's, it's not complicated. How is it? Bef- it was more than one step before? I believe it was two separate actions, one to unlock and then one, a different action to separate. Oh. I can't speak to that. I did not fly on a plane before. 1988. So uh-huh. I don't know what they look like before then. So I, I, I can't answer that. I'm, I'm, I'm an old man, Chris, but I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm an old man who grew up in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> not your tiny town, a separate tiny town. Uh, and then the last recommendation here is some of the passengers hit their head on the back of the seat in front of them, leading some to have partial loss of consciousness. 
Therefore, it's recommended that studies be undertaken so that the design of future seats take this potential problem into account. That's kind of why, you know, when they tell you to brace, you know, you lean forward to put your head on your hands on the seat in front of you. That way, when you suddenly stop, you don't slam your head on the seat in front of you. It's already kind of resting in that position. Yeah. So I know lots of times when we talk about these incidents, you'll ask about if anyone served jail time or were there any lawsuits related. Well, in 1996, Captain Asseline and First Officer Maziers and two Air France officials and the president of the Flying Cup sponsoring the air show were all charged with involuntary manslaughter. Oh, my God. In 1997, all five were found guilty. Oh, my God. Captain Michel Asseline was initially sentenced to six months in prison along with 12 months of probation. First Officer Maziers was given a 12-month suspended sentence and the others were all sentenced to probation. Captain Ossoline walked free from the court, said he would appeal to France's highest court, the Court of Cassation. According to French law, Ossoline was required to submit himself to the prison system before his case could be taken up by that court. Uh, And in 1998, his appeal was rejected and his sentence was increased to 10 months of imprisonment, along with 10 months of probation. So another little twist for, uh, you know, this is is pretty much like we're at the end of the episode here, obviously. Uh We're talking about, you know, criminal charges and prison sentences. There is one last twist to this incident. Uh-huh. Captain Michel Asseline maintains his innocence. To this day, he maintains his innocence and that he was not at fault here. He claims that the protection systems in the A320 prevented him from avoiding this, uh, this crash. He claims that he gave it power and tried to pull back. But remember how I said it's fly-by-wire? That the plane uh-huh. would not allow him to, to climb, would not allow him to pull back. What? He claims that the logic and the flight envelope protections wanted to protect the plane from stalling, so it did not let him climb. Has that been tested? It's been tested extensively. The investigative teams found no evidence to back up his claims, but he maintains it. And if you want to get like conspiracy theory about it, Uh there's a lot of money in blaming this accident on him and not blaming it on the plane. Oh, yeah. This plane's made by Airbus, which is like a collaboration between uh, multiple governments in Europe. Mm-hmm. This was a brand new plane introducing fly-by-wire to the aviation industry. This is a very popular plane. Uh, well, it is nowadays, you know, that we've, we've had yeah. decades since this, since this happened. There, just from a conspiracy theory angle, okay. their incentive is to blame a human and not blame the computer on the plane. Because if the computer on the plane's not trustworthy, then they can't sell this plane. And yeah, this was the launch of it. Right. In reviewing all of the data in reviewing all of this uh, again there's <laughs> I, I i i'm normally not like a big conspiracy theory person yeah if you look through the report and you look through the cockpit voice recorder recordings there are time discrepancies they don't line up entirely correctly there's a three second gap there's a time difference between the official report and the the black box data that show that if you go by that like that's extra three seconds could be the difference. Remember I said it takes the engines five seconds to spool up? Uh-huh. Supposedly, according to the flight data, the captain applied the full go-around power an extra three seconds earlier, oh. which would have given him eight seconds before the impact. According to the official report, he gave it five seconds before the impact. There is, and like I said, mm. the, this has been looked at extensively by the investigative committees, uh-huh. and they maintain that it was the captain's fault that there was no, the plane did not do anything to restrict him. But the captain, like I said, to this day maintains his innocence and maintains that the black boxes were tampered with and that there is a cover up to put, to throw him under the bus uh, in order to save, 
<laughs> nice. In order to save the <laughs> reputation of Airbus and and this plane. So how did is there no explanation for the discrepancy? I mean, it, there's no explanation, Chris. They don't know. They don't owe anyone an explanation, right? <laughs> this is the investigative committee. They what they say is final. There's 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 no explanation for it. That's just another weird wrinkle about uh-huh. this particular incident. So I just think I just thought it was something really interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find some information. Uh, when I post about this on social media, I'll make a note right now. I'll see if I can find some information. Uh, if you're curious to read more about this time discrepancy, yeah, uh, I'll see if I can find it. Because I, I saw it in a, a documentary video where uh-huh. they were reviewing all of this. I'll see if I can find an official, well, not an official. I'll see if I can find a write-up and a report that I can send a link to. And, and, and in the case against them, I mean, it's just saying that they were negligent and what, like not, che- not checking out the airport in advance or flying poorly and yeah there are other faults here right like even if the black box was tampered with there was still fault to be had here they still weren't following protocol they were still doing things incorrectly correct so it could be that's another reason why the committee isn't that interested in hearing about this conspiracy because in the end if you got to a point where three seconds is the difference between life and death you still messed up to get to that Mm -hmm. point you were still negligent if you reached that point in a flight. And I mean, I can see that, but the captain went to prison. I mean, <laughs> th- this is, this is a big deal. Like he loses, you know, he, he can't fly anymore after that. Like that's the end of his career. Yeah. So, I mean, I can see it's, it's, it's a tough one, but man, it's uh it's still entirely avoidable. Yeah. You've researched this. Do you have a, an opinion? Like if you had to put money on it, man, my, opi- like uh, my opinion is probably the last thing I said, where even if there was a conspiracy, the captain is still responsible and the captain still got to a point where a disaster could have possibly been averted by a three second window. Yeah. It's still negligent that it reached that point. That's my opinion. Of course, I'm not an investigator. I'm not a pilot. Uh, I have like, I just, I'm I'm really interested about aviation and these incidents, which is why we started this podcast. So you you don't think it's wrong that inherently that he was convicted, right? Because he still, was negligent in other ways, even if it, even if, even if there was a cover. I think my big concern is why was it only him? You know, there were mm. plenty, there's plenty of blame to go around yeah. and, you know, they, they charged a bunch of people, but in the end, the captain's the only one who actually went to prison. Um, I think there's more blame to be spread around, honestly. Yeah. That sounds, I mean, normally there is mm-hmm. most of the episodes. There's always, it's very rare that it's like all one person. Yeah. And like I said, the other people were found guilty, just they didn't go to mm. prison. Like, uh, like the captain did. They all got probation or suspended sentences. Yeah. So anyway, I'll, uh, this, this, that's why I kind of saved a couple of twists in this one <laughs> as we were, go, as we were going through it, just because it seems so cut and dry. I'll in social media, I'll link some of the videos that you see. It seems like a real cut and dry case, but like many things, like many episodes we've talked about, like there's really a lot that goes into this and it's, it's never as simple as it seems. They're, they're very complicated sometimes. But that's it. That's uh, Air France 296Q. A really scary incident because there's so much video of it. There's so much. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it looks terrible. But yeah, we'll, uh, we'll post that video on social media at Black Box Down Pod, uh, as well as any supplemental uh, material we can find for you to check out. So go check that out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Yeah, and you can find all that. If you want to go direct, we have a link tree. We'll have that and a link to, our, to sign up for our first class. Yeah, at blackboxdownpod.com. And if you're listening to the first time, please subscribe and consider telling a friend about us. Chris, you run the link tree. You got to make sure you put black. I know, I know. I'm doing it right now. Okay. While looking up Tiny Town. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it, everybody. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.